0: Investors can be incredibly distracting. And if you're constantly chasing their narrative rather than yours, you're the expert. And if you're already set up in a relationship early that they're seeing you as, you know, a cog in the, in the system that, like, they're going to fit to their formula, then it's going to really hinder your ability to, to really nail your solution to the problem that you're trying to chase.
1: From the Insight Studio, this is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Stephanie Sample, and on today's show, Erica and how she founded My Village to solve the problem of childcare in the U.S.
0: My Village is a national community of high-quality, home-based, child care entrepreneurs so early childhood entrepreneurs and our mission is to harness the power of community to create exceptional care for every child everywhere across the country
1: wow okay so i want to unpack that a little bit because when i didn't even know about this problem before i had kids right like We all kind of, it seems pretty easy to put your blinders on to what's going on in childcare until you're trying to go back to work and need it. So I want to take a step back and tell me a little bit about like, what is the need here? How did you even discover this as a problem that needed to be solved?
0: So my discovery process was driven very much from my personal experience to start, but became very a system level a system level discovery journey as i started to dig in from an entrepreneurial perspective so i had my first child and i was running a business building a business in africa actually so i brought her to africa and i was traveling trying to be a mom in lots of capital cities around the world, landing trying to use the internet and <laughs> the few people I was meeting with to, to find quality care f- from my child. And what I realized is it's hard everywhere. And it started leading me back to a series of conversations into the US where obviously I'm American and, and from that just blew my mind how challenging it was to find quality, affordable care that was actually available when you need it. And that was like to a degree of there's they call child care deserts in the United States. So it's a differential of supply demand from three to one. So for every one placement that's available, three children need that placement in more than half the country. I mean, it is an, an insane mismatch. And what it creates is situations where you show up as a new mom to try to find care or new parent try to find care. And your response is, I will never have vacancies because parents plan their pregnancies around my openings. That was said to me once. And you feel like you're failing as a parent before you even have a chance to start because you didn't get on a wait list while you were thinking about conceiving. And that to me was what created this obsessive journey of really trying to understand what's broken in the system that drew me back to the US. I moved back to the US to start this business of really ultimately trying to build up new quality supply. So new quality placements across the country so that our, that families could have options that they could actually afford.
1: Yeah. That, that's so interesting. I'm curious, like when you, when you're in the research phase and I want to point out you're four years in now, so this, I'm taking you back a little bit, that one to three ratio, how many like childcare deserts are there in the U S about It's over 50% of the U.S. from a, like,
0: geographic perspective. So over half of the country is a childcare desert. Oh, my goodness. Which, as you can imagine, makes this absolute anxiety-ridden panic, like, free-for-all for care. And then, so families who have a lot of resources are able to have other options, get nannies or individualized care, which, you know, there's a variety of pros and cons for each choice. But think about the choices and the trade offs that families who have really limited resources have to make. And that to me was one of the biggest. Factors of really figuring it, like committing myself and and knowing that this is exactly the problem that I want to be solving right now, is those those trade offs for resource constrained families, which is most of America. There's like you shouldn't be putting your your child or having the choice to put your child in a place where you don't feel that it's even safe for them.
1: Mm. So with that one in three ratio, what's happening as a result of that? Are people opting out of the workforce? Are they creating, it sounds like there's low care kind of things that go on. Like what is happening? Yes. So it's all of the above. So there's definitely
0: subpar qualities. So there's unsafe environments that are, have no regulatory oversight and are operating with ratios. So, you know, a caregiver or an educator to the number of children in their program, the ratio is, is, not safe for the attention that children need, not only to be safe, but to develop and actually have the attention and the developmental support to, to thrive. So there's poor quality as as one place. And then there's women who choose to stay home. And this is not only driven by the fact that there's not spots, but also the spots that are available. Again, this is another over 50% stat, but 50% of our country, it's more expensive to send your child to child care, to preschool than it is to send them to college, public university oh tuition. <laughs> and so like the trade-offs, it makes more sense financially to stay home. So we're losing millions of women out of the workforce. And even it, like, I mean, COVID was a perfect, like acute example of this, where in December, there was 140,000 jobs lost in the United States. 100% of them were women-held jobs. There were 16,000 jobs that were gained by men and 140,000 jobs lost by women.
1: Oh, that's like the most horrible stat I've heard in a long time. It's so depressing. And I think we've all been living it this year, right? Like things that you thought like, oh, this isn't a problem for me and stuff, all of a sudden became a problem for all of us. And you know, like if I have to figure out how to memorize multiplication again, like (laughs) for another year, I might lose my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And you're not alone. (laughs) Right, right. So I'm curious. So you, you're in Africa with your, your last company, which was also startups, you're a seasoned entrepreneur. You came to the U.S. to solve this problem. What were some of the solutions you were thinking of? Like, did you think you were going to be like the first like national corporate childcare center? Did you know you were going to do in-home? Like what were some of the ideas you had?
0: I was pretty agnostic to the solution and spent a lot of time trying to understand the problem to start that seems to be my formula for for success a good one. in in and and trying to tackle the more complex like complicated societal problems which is where I get my energy and my my purpose for for wanting to dedicate every day every 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 week every year and and so it started off just trying to understand, OK, the pain for the family is really clear and affordability, quality, availability. You can't have it all. So why is that the case? And started diving into the supply side and really try to understand, you know, and from a systems level, you think, OK, well, if it's not working for the demand side must work for supply, must work for somebody in the system, must be winning. And I started talking across the board. So, you know, meeting with hundreds of center directors and owners and employees and learning more about family home and people running homes out of their their businesses out of their home, all the way to individualized care, nannies, sitters, which interestingly is a space that has had the most innovation, but it is the smallest tiny piece of what makes up the supply landscape and that's because it you know generally higher income it's easier to reach them with technology families are trying to find them via technology where that's not the case you know when you look at the the entire marketplace and what i found was it's really you know and i had a thesis coming into it okay well it's financial obviously uh, you hear the stats that it's less than on average, the child care workforce is making less than 24,000 a year, less than $11 an hour. Obviously those are not motivating stats to keep keep the workforce. But one of the, so one of the first stats I learned was this 20% churn number. So 20% of their early childhood workforce turns every year. If you think about that, that is every five years the workforce is turning over in a field that's very apprentice, practical training based. So just as soon as you're getting really good at what you're doing, you're leaving the sector and going out to retail or something completely different. And so that, from an efficiency perspective, was really motivating to try to figure out, OK, where is this trend coming from? So, like I said, the, the financial piece was my first my first pass at trying to understand is this, is it the financials and the fact that people aren't making money that are driving that that's driving the churn. And what I learned pretty quickly from all of these interviews was there's a financial threshold. People obviously need to make their life work by, by doing this, but ultimately it really comes down to the reason as long as they can hurdle that, the reason that they're turning came in kind of two buckets. One, there wasn't a career trajectory, so there was no professional development path for people in this space, unless you were becoming a center director, or a coach in within the system, which of which there are very few roles. That it really was was a, a dead end career, and two was this sense of isolation. So we heard, we didn't hear the word isolation a lot, but in our interviews, we heard my walls are closing in on me. <laughs> and if you can imagine how much that was heightened over COVID and, and when the entire, that it was chronic, the sense of isolation across our society. And so what I found really amazing was the The opportunity within home base, which isn't where I started, but what I found was you can really make a viable business. So the financial and economics can work in a home based model, which is not the case for a, a center based model in many in many instances. But it, there was people who were really going on their journey to to be a first time business owner and a first time educator getting started, and so helping get over that that Gulf of of being a, you know a newbie in both of those categories and not having any community to support you along the way was really really fascinating to me and felt like a scalable problem that could be solved. And so that's where that was the motivation to where we started and it's and why we felt so passionate about home base because some of the, the highest quality experiences are in a in the home, in the in the environment of mixed ages and, and with phenomenal educators, but they get overshadowed by by childcare centers because that's really where the numbers come from.
1: Yeah. So I know you started out when you launched as a franchise model and you've talked to me a little bit about your pivot into membership model with COVID. So will you tell me a little bit about that journey, how you made that switch and then what that looks like now?
0: So we started
1: off thinking
0: about how do we scale quality in a home-based environment when we know this is not a cookie cutter. Everyone's living rooms, backyards, kitchens are all a, a different setting to, to start with. Every educator has very hyperlocal needs that they're trying to meet with their activity schedule, their programming, the, the relationships with their families, the dynamics within their programs. So there was a lot of contextual application in the in the program. And we started off thinking, okay, well, how can we make sure that we're building a national community of, of opportunities for families that is really something, A, that we can be proud to put a national brand behind, which is the whole point of why we wanted to start this in the first place, And but also recognize how quality is very contextual and very hyper-local for this particular segment. And we started with franchise in a very unique kind of Core in context. So, in a in a concept where it was, we had very core things that you could show up at any My Village location in any neighborhood in any of the places, whether it was you know a rural location in a double wide trailer to a high end suburban home, and you knew these were the 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 tenets of the experience that you would be getting, but that there was a lot of room for contextual application of however you wanted to build your business and and serve your your immediate families in your neighborhood. And when we so we started scaling that in two states in Colorado and Montana, and that was over the last couple of years, we built up to a couple hundred franchises in these two states. And then COVID hit and our supply pipeline just went bonkers. And there's there's a historical trend when the economy dips, that there are more home-based programs and more more people that are willing uh whether whether or not they've lost their job or there's financial shifts within their household but the more people interested in doing this job that's you know over the last hundred years that's been a, a counter cyclic trend and so not only was that happening but overnight the world woke up and basically destigmatized what has traditionally been a stigmatized opportunity, an option where people didn't always feel that homes were as high quality as a center-based experience. And so overnight, the home became the safest place and it became normalized to work from your home. And you also didn't have center options and, and centers were closing. So over 80% of our programs stayed open all the way through COVID. We were deemed essential in the states we were operating in. And then this huge explosion in, the, in our supply pipeline of people interested and in wanting to start programs. And the franchise model A was a little bit slow. And B, what we realized over the, so we had to register in each state if we wanted to expand and we couldn't meet the moment. And then also what we were learning was that our experience to act, why we love the concept of of franchise was really trying to make sure that we could create a quality experience in each in each program we realized that, all, that where the quality was coming from were not the elements of the operating manual of the franchise it was of this robust community and the the incredible support system that was behind uh, us helping people become entrepreneurs and develop themselves along their own journey and so we shifted into a franchise model where we were became solely focused on the educators, the new educators, rather than the educators and the families, because the demand was there. We were having wait lists and closing every tour that that landed. You know, it was, (laughs) it was an incredible, there was an incredible need for what we, what we were doing. And so we shifted our entire focus to only focusing on building new supply and doing that through a membership model. So it became flat rate. We lowered our price. We went national and in within a quarter, so in late October, we launched this and we went from two states to, to 30 states now in just a few, a few short months. So it's been an incredible journey to be able to see, A, how valued that this support and connection community, and to also see families and that, you know, and, and new entrepreneurs and new educators that are in totally different hyper-local realities, being able to support each other through these entrepreneurial journeys and give each other ideas and inspiration and connecting to their own whys and their
1: mission in ways that only had dreamed, but never, never thought would be possible so quickly. Yeah, that's amazing. And so, okay, I'm totally following. So you were initially, I just want to clarify for the audience, me as a mom, you were serving me and you were also serving the child care center I might choose to use and we're connecting us. Now you're, you're just focused on the child care center because moms are finding them anyways essentially like that that's going to happen and dads like parents exactly the demand is there and the biggest gap in the market the biggest
0: gap to actually solve this challenge is really accelerating the growth of new quality educators new quality home based child care providers in this
1: space. Awesome. Okay, and so I want to talk a little bit about the membership program. If, you know, I'm thinking about someone sitting at home being like, well, you know, I've been unemployed for a year. Like, how does this work? So talk to me a little bit about like what your offering is, like someone becomes a member and then what? Right. We have a mix from people who
0: have worked in child care centers and have always thought about wanting to go off on their own and run their own business, but feeling, you know, really unsure about, can they be a business owner? And what does it take? What's the risk in taking that leap to somebody who, you know, is employed and in a totally different field, but this is all working with children in their neighborhood and they're calling for being a a community leader and and really supporting their neighborhood has always been an itch, but they weren't really sure how how to take that leap. And so so wherever you are in your understanding of early childhood development or, and becoming a small business owner, you start in, into our program. We have a incredible onboarding experience where you go through figuring out your why envisioning what, you know, what your dream program is, creating a step-by-step plan that helps you navigate through and find your way through all of our, our resources. And the platform kind of works honestly, like, Peloton for early educators, <laughs> where it's like it's a it's a video based. You're connecting in a very informal, very open experience where you're connecting with educators all in different parts of their journey all around the country. You're connected in with our instructors our and, and other experts, world class experts and other peers, ambassadors from the My Village Network, where you're connecting around a goal around a challenge that you're having that you have a robust discussion and then we help move you forward along in the step-by-step journey along your path to opening up your business or developing around, you know, an area or talking about a challenging behavior you're having in your program, you know, whatever wherever you are in your your kind of build launch grow stage of your journey you're finding and connecting with peers and experts
1: that help you really figure out in action your next steps so that you're realizing your dream Oh, that's so cool. So cool. I love what you're doing. One of the things I wanted to talk about since this is a regional podcast. So I think it's a really interesting your journey to Bozeman, Montana. Cause you're not <laughs> from Montana. I know the story, but I would just love for you to kind of share. Like you land in the US and how'd you end up in Bozeman?
0: Yeah. So I was in East Africa for twelve years, coming before this stage of my my journey. And I've had a very windy road of trying to tackle big meaty challenges with the, uh, with businesses. And like I had already talked about my journey of wanting to do this business. So I landed back in the States trying to find a home for launching my village. And I packed my one-year-old at the time in a car with my husband and we went on a 20 or 4,500 mile road trip actually. So we drove from through Nevada, through Idaho, through Montana, through Wyoming, through Colorado, looking for a place to, to launch what we knew would be a high-growth business that really was in, you know, in the midst of the supply-demand mismatch. For So it was like a true representation of the market dynamics that we were looking for that was average... American family experience, we really didn't want to be in it. The the reason we went on the route that we did, we didn't want to be in a coastal bubble building a solution for, you know, a high income urban customer base. And we met with realtors, put my poor kid in like every drop in daycare along the way, trying to understand understand the market and landed in Bozeman and almost immediately felt like this was the place not only... Was like there were a huge influx of of young families that were coming here. There was a huge supply demand. I mean, this is certainly one of the childcare hotbeds of childcare desert dynamics. It was you know a place that felt like it had a, a budding entrepreneurial. I mean, it's very entrepreneurial in its DNA, but a budding budding community where recruiting talents and like, you know, all of the ingredients for building a high growth business were all here to be put together and used. And so that was, it was almost a
1: immediate, very clear, no brainer decision for us to, to start here. Wonderful. So you moved to Bozeman with your husband and your one-year-old. Um, and I know you have a co-founder. So tell me about that. What, at what stage did your co-founder come in and all of that? She came in early, so I
0: was in month three, four of exploring the problem. And she and I went to business school together. and And she has always been somebody that I've used as a sounding board, and I really respect her her opinion. I had weird, twisted story. Had actually hired her husband, who also went to business school with us in my solar business in in Africa. So they had moved out from the U.S. to Africa to help support and grow that business. And so we had had, you know, a lot of of intersections and a lot of different applications for testing our, a lot of trying moments to (laughs) test our partnership over the years. And so as soon as, and she had just also had her first child as well. And so she had moved back to the States and she moved to Boulder, Colorado. And she had had the experience where she, you know, had her seven-month-old, moved back to the States, went to the biggest center in Colorado that everybody recommended, and they laughed at her, in essence, and said, you know, like, it's a two-year wait list. (laughs) Like, there's no, there's (laughs) absolutely no way you will ever get a spot, like, within the next year. And that crushed her soul in the same way that I was going through that same journey. And so we connected up. We have very complementary skill sets. She is, you know, a very operational finance, uh, CFO mentality, amazing operator. And so we started just beating the pavement, really trying to understand the space and, and start experimenting around the business model. So those were the first two states we launched in was Colorado and Montana. And we our team, we offered initially you know, to be based in either either place. And then we actually had a CTO that I worked with, our CTO Thor from the solar business. He's based in Amsterdam. So we have a pretty global global footprint in our in our team. And so yeah, it was it was pretty early on and it was a pretty clear decision. And you know, been through a, a few learning processes in in starting businesses with other co-founders and when my feeling is, you know, when you know and you've been through the, the hard knocks of learning exactly how to get super clear about the dynamics of your partnership and, and speaking super openly about ultimately the marriage that you're going to embark in. And so it felt it felt really right and really natural with with her. And we had a lot of great open conversations that have been super they come to
1: fruition in a lot of ways it, through this business. So it's been a dream, really. Oh, that's great. So I'm, I'm thinking about to like you, you all launching the journey, your four years in and stuff. So were you able to launch before raising money? And at what point did you all, did you know from day one, you were going to need to go out and raise money? And then at what point did you do that? We knew from day one, it was going to be a venture backed solution.
0: The, The reason being we didn't have the money to fund it. <laughs> they, <and laughs> That's a also, good reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, we had some money to, that we put in to start to start the market research, but also, I mean, fundamentally, we wanted to solve a really big problem. That scale was a requirement, and and so we knew that. For us, it was always a matter of a small piece of a giant pie was absolutely the, you know, for us what good looked like and and making sure that we were having enough resources to and the right resources. So we went out and, and found and really were pretty dogmatic about about connecting with impact investors early on because we knew that this was a customer base that was going to go through quite a few different passes of trying to figure out exactly what the model was going to be to solve this because it was a very complex problem. And we didn't want to be pushed upstream in our market early to really drive towards maximizing revenue when we knew that what was actually going to move the needle was very mass market and it's price point and, and its target market. So that was, for us, was super clear. Like this had to be with a vision for our high growth and scale to move the needle at all in this country. And we wanted to make sure that we had investors who also saw the same vision for this is, you know, a Main Street average average family product, not a, you know, and solution, not a nanny, super high end top
1: 1% to 10% solution. Sure, that's that's really interesting. And I was already thinking about this on your investor journey. Because you targeted impact investors, do you feel like they understood the problem quickly? Like, you know, this is kind of an interesting problem to be solving in the venture field. It's not B2B SaaS. And so how quickly, like, were your investors just getting it right away? Did it take like a parent to understand the problem? It was
0: really and I would say the parent factor was definitely more of a trend than male or female or in really understanding. So if, if there was a parent who had been through it or was in the thick of it themselves, it was clearly a high priority challenge or at least they understood the acute nature of the problem. The, I mean, the market is giant. So there's $50 billion being spent on, and this is like known so not the informal market but in the in the formal market in the US. And so there's there's it's a really big opportunity. I think that the unknown solution component is like we have a thesis and we know that it's complex enough that that's going to evolve over time. I think that particularly was the the piece that impact investors get really excited about. And they have a lot of information and knowledge and experience around the workforce and workforce channel, like in general. And that was my experience coming from obviously had to sell part of our whole catalytic impact in Africa was selling the African rooftop as an investable opportunity to Western investors. And that Took years to, to get, build up that, you know, that engine and those that traction and proof points to be able to unlock that. But when we did, it was incredibly powerful that of the impact that we were able to unlock there. And so for me, it was applying a formula that I knew already with a different sector to, to this space, but then really making sure that investors were fascinated by the complexity, you know, and, and excited by the complexity of the problem. Because it wasn't going to be, you know, a super simple solution that was clearly going to scale in six months and raise, raise an A that was like, you know, a slam dunk with mass market offering. So there, there was, I think, patience and understanding for, for the kind of Main Street customer was definitely a, a common thread through all the investors mm, as well. Yeah.
1: You know, it's so curious to me, just the idea of raising money in our region now and because you you know you're in Colorado too and you know this region really well it wasn't so long ago where funding felt like an impossible task to do from somewhere like Montana even some, like Wyoming I can't even imagine Idaho all all these states but today that's not the case and you know zoom meetings are becoming more and more common So access to capital is becoming easier in Montana. And one of the things that I keep hearing from friends that have raised money is, like, find the, like, like people that are just sold on your vision and idea that are excited, that understand the problem so well. And so I'm curious, like, how important is that to you? Like, the idea of finding the VCs that write the check versus the ones... They just get it. Like, how should founders weigh that? It's
0: it's essential is that you need to have investors that believe and trust you and have expertise in the areas that you know you need to stretch into. Investors can be incredibly distracting. And if you're constantly chasing their narrative rather than yours, you're the expert. And if, they, if you're already set up in a relationship early that they're seeing you as, you know, a cog in the in the system that like they're going to fit to their formula, then it's going to really hinder your ability to, to really nail your solution to the problem that you're trying to chase. So I 100% agree that there, there's no reason that you can't raise Money from Montana on Zoom. <laughs> we did we did it in two rounds. I mean, we've raised over over seven million for this business over the past couple of years. We did. I did not close my first round until I had a, one Montana investor. But most of it was money from out of the state and out of out of the region. And that was because also like the perception of risk was also catching. Or, you know, the appetite for risk was also catching up in the States. So this was a handful of years ago. There's been a lot more companies that have, have come in. And so because we didn't fit a traditional, it's not a you know enterprise-to-ask business. It's not a, a security business. It's not like there's there's certain things that people are more comfortable with here. It was definitely of interest, but like a little hard to wrap people's heads around. And so I think that like it's been really healthy to be able to have the access to money from, you know, other hubs across the country start to flow in here is created and really caught the ecosystem up in Montana to the the process of raising money and the the risk perception around bit, where to take take bets on businesses. I think that there has been leap like leapfrog forward over the last couple of years here in that space. Yeah,
1: and even COVID. Like I think now it's just it was like. Getting there before COVID, now it's just accepted. And I I think it's so important for founders in our region to understand is that 10 years ago, a VC's thesis would have like a city in it or a state. Like we serve, you know, B2B SaaS from San Francisco, from wherever. No one is listing a location anymore. And so founders in our region can reach out to anyone. Or if they do, they're
0: like many of them are listing the Midwest or you know, they're, they're listing areas that underserved markets. (laughs) Exactly. So it's a really interesting, I mean, I think, I think it's, there's a benefit in a lot of ways to find the right financing and there's a lot of people who are particularly interested in trying to expand here and grow and, and i've had investors who invested in us who are reaching out saying oh we want to get another bozeman-based company we want to get another montana-based company we heard through the grapevine this other like that's happened in the last few months that they've they've heard oh, of opportunities popping up so it's been cool to be able to, to pull more people and really help stoke the the financing ecosystem here
1: yeah, I think that's so great too. And I mean, I hope like a part of creating this podcast that investors that are trying to figure out how to get into the state can understand the or the whole region, the region better and understand that. And I mean, I have a bias in Montana. Like I think like everyone should become a founder. The opportunity <laughs> is so great. We're in such a great ecosystem to be a startup founder. And then the access to capital beyond our borders is massive. Like you could be yeah. a founder, in this region, with any idea, even if your you know local VCs aren't funding that kind of idea, it just doesn't matter anymore. Which is so cool. Absolutely. Okay, we could go down this this rabbit hole. But I'm gonna pull us out of it real quick. Last question, and then I want to switch into my rapid fire round. What's the future of my village? Where are y'all going in the near future? What's what's the bigger vision? Our vision is to eliminate. Childcare deserts,
0: one. So we want to create the most motivated, inspired community of early childhood entrepreneurs across the country that support each other, connect with each other, redefine how development and upskilling in a really distributed workforce actually can work in, in a super motivating way in any sector. So we want this sector to show, we want our early childhood entrepreneurs not to be thought of as something you do when you can't do other things, but as ultimately what my daughter looks at her teacher, looks at the experience she's having and Says I want to be Miss Echo when I grow up. So we want we want to create that opportunity for everybody across every neighborhood in the country. Awesome. And where, I can't where wait. Where we're at, I know it's gonna it's <laughs> happening, which is an amazing yes. thing. And so I think for us, it's you know it's really getting our coverage across the the country, really getting we're, you know we've we've got this incredible network that's growing, and then it's going to be constantly building all of the enabling tools and and services for them that help them thrive as as entrepreneurs and educators.
1: That's so great. Okay, rapid fire. Okay, buckle up. Let's do it. Okay, what are you looking forward to in the next 30 days personally or professionally? We are having our
0: first in person executive gathering since COVID happened (laughs) in Butte, Montana. And I am psyched. So we're doing all of our necessary precautions. Many of our our team have have been vaccinated and we are able to be in person with each other for the first time in in a long time. So I'm thrilled about that.
1: Oh, that's so great. I totally get that. It's almost like, will it be uncomfortable to like be with real humans? And no, it's no. going to be a view, which is even more I exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love view. Okay. If your company shut down for a week and you could do anything with your time except work, what would you do? If it was the
0: summer, I would ride horses racing down the Yellowstone River and, and do it with my kids as well and if it was the winter I would be on the ski hill my my daughter just took her first she's five she just took her first solo ski lift last weekend so it's it's like it's been an incredibly thrilling (laughs) thrilling mountain mountain winter for us
1: Oh, I love that. I think every parent knows that moment where you're on the lift behind your kid riding alone. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, I think we've made it in life. And yeah, I, we didn't even point that out. But I do want to point out to the audience that you in this four-year journey, you started with one child and have had two more in it. That is really impressive. because, like, I have, Yep, I have. Three little daughters,
0: beautiful daughters under the age of well five and under now. So I am truly keeping my, my connection to our customer real.
1: <laughs> yes, it's so amazing. I mean, I've, I've lived it to entrepreneur having kids and like my kids some days are lucky they got food. Okay, I think yours are much better off than mine though. <laughs> Anything binge worthy in your life right now? Books, podcasts, TV shows... Ooh, uh, I'm
0: definitely. I've always been a big fan of multipliers, but I have really gotten deep into essentialism. The book Essentialism. So I mm-hmm. both. I think those the combination of those two are an incredible guide to building businesses, being a manager, being a better a better mom, human, and so that the those two are definitely. Super front and center for me. What fun! Oh man, I love the Duchess. Binger, I don't know if you've watched that on Netflix. Tell me more. It's Catherine Ryan, the comedian. It's pretty vulgar for <laughs> for those who uh, like don't want uh, anything explicit. Don't don't watch that. But it is a hilarious. She's an American, has a child in in, in the UK to a boy bander. and it's <laughs> oh, she's just
1: hilarious. So it's if you're a beer mom and need a giggle, it's pretty funny. Okay. I'm going to check that one out. Who is someone that you are really looking up to in life right now? I am really looking up to,
0: the first thing that came to mind is Brene Brown. I have in this journey going from what was very, a like a very business in a box starting solution to much more of a transformational coaching experience for our educators. And she's been such a guiding light of humility and point of view and showing up and like I just, I just really admire her, her presence that she brings to every single, her openness that she brings to every single conversation. So
1: yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing. So amazing. I know. I love, I remember listening to one of her books. The first time I listened to, I was on a run and it's like, I had to stop in the middle of the street. I was like, almost crying. I was like, oh my God, someone understands me. <laughs> It's like a crazy moment. I know. I hosted a TEDx
0: like when I was in business school a long time ago and we used her, one of her talks as the power of vulnerability as one of the ones that we had played when we didn't have speakers. And I remember at the, like it I had no idea how relevant it was gonna be (laughs) for the rest of my life. But I'm like, oh man, great selection when I think back about it.
1: Yeah, it's really intense. She's awesome. Okay, next question What is a current challenge you're facing professionally or personally?
0: To pull on the thread of, of this shift into transformational coaching, I'm an entrepreneur and I know how to build a business. I know how to manage a team, lead a team, coach a team, but really shifting into a coaching mentality for in our product is like, it feels like my leadership is evolving along with that. And so I think it's, maybe that's a journey and a challenge that's always gonna be, is always gonna be the case, but it like really getting out of the linear like here's a tool you have a problem here's a tool mentality to to a coaching transformational coaching mentality has is really front center for me
1: yeah okay final question on days when what you're doing seems impossible what motivates you to keep going two things can I say to you yep (laughs) one
0: this one time (laughs) my husband's cooking like the amount of passion and energy he puts into his food is so incredible that it's truly inspirational for me to find and and you know contribute and and cultivate my passion for other things so I'm so lucky to be able to have that on a regular basis and see some you know have dinner be an art form in many ways and then Mm -hmm. my kids I mean the like being able to both connect my personal and my professional challenges in such a fluid way is is an incredible gift so really leaning into into how they're how they're
1: viewing their experience is is the other way that keeps me going. Yeah, that's great. Well, Erica, thank you so much. To end, please tell our audience where they can find My Village and you online. Absolutely, myvillage.com.
0: Pretty pretty simple. I think that's the best best way you'll learn a lot more about us and find us on social from there.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to foundintherockies.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. See you next time.